This podcast is brought to you by StoreMaven. I won't lie, I am an employee at StoreMaven, so I want to tell you a little bit about why it's the greatest company on earth. If you're interested in growing your app in any way, organically, paid, both, we have tools to help you do it, whether it's optimizing your creatives, measuring the success and the effect of different efforts that you're taking, or just telling you what people look for in an app. We're here to help you do it. What's your like ideal customer profile, the person you're targeting? Where do they live? What do they use? What are they doing? That network is most likely your best network. Welcome to Mobile Growth and Pancakes, a podcast by Stormaven. We break down how and why mobile apps grow. In each episode, we invite a mobile growth expert onto the show to break down a specific mobile growth strategy, how it worked, why it worked, and what they would do differently. I'm your host, Esther Schatz. Welcome to Mobile Growth and Pancakes. I'm joined today by Salo Marti. Uh, Salo, do you want to introduce yourself a bit? Tell us uh, a bit about you, about your time. You've been in growth for over 10 years now. So uh, give us a brief intro. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, Like you said, I've been in growth for a little bit more than 10 years now. Um, I started my career, I guess, uh, not expecting to get into growth. I didn't know I was going to get into growth. Um, I started my own startup uh, very early on when I was like 21, 22. Um, and I started my own startup and it was kind of like no one knew anything about growth. Well, no one knew anything about anything. Um, so we figured like, let's all just use our, our superpowers and our abilities to try to figure out where we each fit in the scale of like this startup that we're building. And it turned out that um, I just had a little bit more knowledge regarding marketing and understood things a little bit better when it came to marketing and growth. So I kind of started going in that direction, not because I liked it, just because it fit better with the team we were on. Um, And then um, as we started growing, as we started getting more mature, um, I eventually uh, sold my startup. I joined a CMO at another startup in Brazil, a very big startup uh, today called Contabilize. Um, eventually I decided that I wanted to leave Brazil, wanted to go to Europe and explore and like learn more uh, in Europe. I just wanted to get a different dose of, of reality, I guess. Um, and I joined a startup called Blinkist, which uh, is very mobile first. So people know in the mobile industry, people know it quite well, um, where I was doing all the mobile acquisition. Um, eventually I left Blinkist to kind of be part of the founding team for a startup called Highbooks. Uh, Highbooks was... Uh, one of the top like three audiobook subscription apps for about a good year and a half. Um, and then we were acquired by a Chinese company. Um, after that acquisition, um, it kind of didn't really make sense for me to continue. Um, so I decided to transition, thought about where I wanted to go. And I joined 8Fit, which was, or which is one of the biggest uh, mobile um apps out there, fitness apps in the world with more than, I think, 25, 30 million users. I'm one of them. I love my 8Fit. I got a lot of good recipes and uh, and many exercises from there. <laughs> there you go. It's a great app. I always I always highly recommend it. Um, and then after about four years in, in Berlin or three and a half years in Berlin, six months in, in Silicon Valley, uh, my wife and I, we kind of decided like, hey, it's time to go to a place where we speak the language. So we're kind of done with, with Germany. 
Um, and it's just a very hard language to learn. So uh, I was like, yep, let's just try something different. Um, it ended up making sense that we came back to Brazil uh, and I joined a company called Olis, uh, which is a, it's probably out of all the companies I worked at, the one that's least related to mobile growth because um, it's more B2B software uh, platform. Uh, so traditional SaaS, but more platform. However, we did launch two mobile products that are very, very uh, uh, important to us and growing very rapidly. Um, in general, just quick overview, Olis is um, an ecosystem of solutions or a platform to help small merchants succeed online. Uh, so to sell more, be more impactful, be more... Uh, in general, we see our mission is to empower commerce. Um, I joined there as CMO. Um, it's a Series D company already. So we raised a... Uh, recently, we raised a Series D from uh, SoftBank, Velo Capital, Vel Group, and a bunch of other really great investors. Um, so yeah, it's been great. Um, like I said from the beginning, I didn't know I was going to get into growth. I just realized I had a knack for it. Um, as my, my career started going. So I guess that's it. Yeah. So for someone who uh, didn't originally intend to be in growth, you've hit quite a range. I mean, both in terms of kind of mobile, off mobile, but also in terms of genre. So you're in a ton of different industries and, and definitely different uh, markets, different goals. Could you talk a little bit about how you set growth KPIs? Do they look different company by company? What's, uh, how does that process look? Sure. I would say that it definitely looks different company by company. Um, and it looks different state by stage. Um, depending on the stage that you're in, you're going to want to uh, set your KPIs, first of all, realistically. Um, I don't think anyone comes in, launches an app and puts their I don't know, growth target at a million users in one month. Like it may happen. Yes, you may hit viral like growth speeds and whatnot, but it's unlikely. Um, but anyway, I think uh, you have to set your KPIs to not only your like realistic goals, like smart goals, um, but also to the stage of the company that you're in. So some companies just don't have massive budgets to work with. You don't have like infinite cash to throw at. Uh, performance marketing campaigns and branding campaigns and brand awareness campaigns and influencers. Like you don't have the ability to test all these different channels and see which one works best for your audience and things like that. Um, on the other hand, some companies you've reached a stage where you're spending so much money, but what you really need to do is figure out what's the best return on investment for each channel. What is the goal for each channel? How do you attribute each specific point of the journey? So I think it really depends not only the business you're in, but also the stage of the company you're in. Um, so if I compare Olist, a B2B platform, uh, SaaS, mostly off mobile to a company like Blinkist, 100% mobile um, and really focused on just rocket ship growth uh, and user base, B2C, uh, they're very different. Like 30,000 clients in a B2B company is massive. 30,000 users in a B2C company, not so much. Um, so it, it really comes down to like your growth goals based on the moment you're at and things like that. What I like to do is I always like to analyze um, three key components of uh, growth. First one is um, your budget slash money. 
like how much money resources actually. And so it's not just money, but like resources. What are the resources at your disposal? That's one part of your triangle, let's say. Um, the other one is the growth uh, speed you want to be. Uh, sometimes you're just going like growth for growth. You want to blitz scale. You want to hit like specific milestone numbers regardless of their efficiency because you're in, I don't know, maybe a uh, fundraising moment or you're uh, trying to outpace your competition, whatever it may be. Um, so you have your speed, uh, uh, like your speed index or growth levers or growth milestones you want to hit. You have your resources and then you have efficiency. So these three need to kind of in some way or another work together. You're never going to be able to set KPIs that all three of these directly contradict each other. So that's the thing that to me, most marketers always make this mistake. I've made this mistake. Every growth person I know has made this mistake, which is you want to spend less, growth more, grow faster. Like it's not going to happen. Like there's no magic stick. Like you can't just wave a wand and it's done. Uh, and then someone's always going to be like, yes, but if you find that growth hack that can propel you to the top organically, this is when I say yes, if you're a product-led growth company. If you're a product-led growth company, you can truly think about how to do this. Think of all the companies that truly grew organically. They either hit viral growth because of just how great the product was or because they hit viral growth because inherently the product to be good required more people. Like look at Clubhouse. Clubhouse's massive rise has been because if you don't have people there, it's completely useless. Um, so yeah. This is a harsh reality. <laughs> I think for a lot of companies to accept, you know, and I've heard it also that you ex you look for the magic and you look for, well, have you tried this network and have you tried this uh, this balance and you expect the magic to happen and really... I think it, it generally comes down to smaller scale efforts, right? Which is optimizing towards, like you said, you've got to be realistic on your growth, expect something, you know, that's, that's tangible, that's in reach, that's not dependent and, and comfortable with the efforts that you need to invest in it. I guess one of the questions that I have there is, especially when you're in an earlier stage. So, you know, you've been at, at companies that are early stage, how do you assign a budget to efforts when you don't yet know what that return on uh, on investment is going to be. This is this is so. This is one of my favorite topics because I think everyone makes mistakes here. I've made mistakes. Um, I'll probably continue to make mistakes. But this is where I see most of the companies I advise struggling. Um, so here's the thing: if you don't have infinite budget, how do you expect to be able to test thirty different channels? Right, you're like, oh, I want to test programmatic. I want to test this network, that network. I want to do Facebook, Instagram. I want to do messenger ads because they now seem to be working. I want to do stories. I want to do, uh, I don't know, Twitter might work for me. Quora, Pinterest, like you name it. Like you, you just have a, a plethora of possible channels that may work for you. Um, the thing is, all of these channels can be optimized towards success depending on your success goals. Not all of them may be the right channel for you to hit your growth levers in the early stages. So what I always say is, what's your ICP? What's your like ideal customer profile, the person you're targeting? Where do they live? What do they use? What are they doing? That network is most likely your best network. Um, so like for most early stage consumer subscription apps, I always say like, why not start at Instagram? Like, 
why do you think you're going to be smarter than everyone else and just like crack the curve on a different channel that just no one has done, right? You might be able to do it, but chances are your most uh, uh, ROI or lowest friendly channel is going to be like Instagram or maybe Google, depending on the type of product you have. Um, so I always like to tell companies I advise, stick to the basics, learn the fundamentals of your messaging, of your creative direction, of your um, uh, like the buckets that work for you, test, and then, then you can scale these tests to different channels. Plus, always focus on the more control. Yeah. Let's, um, you know, I think definitely you hit, there's, maybe it comes back to your previous point of you have this hope that you can reach more while spending less, while converting more. And that has to come from some magic other network because you know Instagram is not going to bring you that, uh, that secret recipe. But let's focus in on the testing side a little bit more. Um, you know, you, it's kind of, it's at every stage, right? So you're testing different networks, you're, tef- you're testing creatives, you're testing that entire flow. How do you, um, you know, even if you could take a specific example from one of your, you know, one of the campaigns that you've really tried, how do you put in a successful testing structure without getting lost in the mass amounts of testing that you could be able to do? You know, you don't have the ability when you're to scale like that. I, I, I- I think I've, um, I'm quite proud of the framework that I use. It's the same framework that I, I pitch to every company I advise. I always see them using it and it, I don't know. I don't know if it's the best, but it's easy. It's definitely the simplest. And that's why I like it. Um, essentially it's, it's a, um, there's several different components to this framework, but like one component is making sure that everyone understands what a hypothesis document is and what it looks like. Like what, so whatever test you run, whatever it may be, it has to be able to be described on a, on what I call a hypothesis document. This hypothesis document is essentially, um, what test do you want to run? Why do you want to run it? Like what's the hypothesis behind this test? How do you run this test? So like exactly how do you apply it in, is it through Facebook? Is it through this, through that? What channel, what network? What, like, is it a creative test? Whatever it may be. Um, the variables in this test that are actually going to be tested, how you're going to measure success or failure, and what's the outcome, if it's positive or if it's negative. If it re- like, what do you expect it to reach? If it's positive, what's the next step? If it's negative, what's the next step? Usually this is where people fail. They forget to do this last step where it's, if it's positive, you have a go-to plan. Like you know what you're going to do next, whether it's a positive uh, experiment or if it's a negative experiment. If you don't know what to do after a positive experiment, don't even run the test. Like, don't even waste your time. Don't, it's like, don't waste your breath. Don't create a document. Don't do anything. Because if you don't know what comes next, there's no point in doing it. And I think this is, to me, this is one of the key uh, levers that makes this framework simple because it kills so many tests at the idea stage. Because um, then people come in, it's like, oh, I want to test this creative. It's green background versus blue background. I'm like, great. What's the next step after it's done? Oh, everything is going to be green. Do you think that that's going to, like, is that really going to be that impactful? Most likely not. And so if you don't have a direct plan of action after the confirmed hypothesis, 
don't even run the test. Like, just forget about it. I think that's, that's maybe, it sounds maybe simple if you haven't gone through the, you know, kind of testing at scale, but I could not agree more. I think a lot of the times we've gotten so used to the idea that, you know, I think every company aims to be data-driven and of course you should aim to be data-driven because data doesn't lie. You know, it's, it's a much more straightforward, but in that process, you end up with a lot of kind of any internal debate, the answer goes straight to test it, um, which is great in theory, but in practice, it's exactly like you said, if you don't know what it means practically, it's not just about, you know, okay, she's looking this way or she's looking that way. There's got to be something behind it that drives you. I disagree that everyone should look to be data-driven. I think companies should be data-informed. They shouldn't be data-driven. The key difference there lies in how you react to data. So for example, um, if you run a test where, I don't know, you launch a creative where it's the same image, but the person is looking to the left or the person is looking to the right, like like the example you gave, and let's say looking to the right is successful, for whatever reason it may be, it got the better CAC or whatever it may be. Um, is this something you can reproduce at scale? Like, is every single creative you launch from now on going to be looking to the right? Probably not. Like, the answer is no. Like, most 99% certainty that it's no. You're always going to be testing different things. You're going to be, like, looking for different solutions and things like that. Um, so this test, by definition, is the positive result does not warrant a next action. If it doesn't warrant a next action, it doesn't need to be run. Um, but when I say that you need to be data-informed is, for example, if you run an A-B test of no paywall versus paywall for a subscription app, which one's going to get the highest subscription rate? Obviously, the no paywall. Do you need to run a test to know this? Like, Do you need to confirm this by test? Obviously, you don't. Like, you're gonna get a higher uh, uh, subscription if you don't charge anything for it. Um, however, will this meet your bottom line goal? Will this help you meet your ROAS goal, your revenue goal? Can you turn those free users into paying customers down the line, etc.? That's where your testing is actually going to lead you, right? So, if you're data informed, you don't need to run that first test. You can you can take it at face value. Yeah, I like that. I like the data informed. Um, but how much does that, you know, how much control do you have over that as the person in charge of growth? Meaning you end up in usually a lot of kind of uh, department crossfires for whatever reason. Where do you balance the idea that, you know, there's there's growth KPIs and there's things that you know from the growth side and there's maybe a different sense from product, something different going on with brand. How do you, where do you draw your line? What do you control? So um, I've been very, very fortunate that I controlled most of this in most of the companies where I was at, <laughs> um, uh, but not all the time. So I understand like sometimes you're going to have some conflict. Um, the thing is, if if you're in discussion, like I, I, will, I always hear people saying like, oh, my product team doesn't want to test this. And then I think oh, they don't want to prioritize this test in the testing, like in, I don't know, their development cycle and their development sprint. I always think, did you explain the outcome of this test? Like, does everyone understand the impact it could have on the company's North Star metric? If the answer is yes, then there's just simply a problem in prioritization. And this just needs to be hashed out between 
directors, between CEO, whatever level of hierarchy there is. Um, but if you haven't, then it's quite obvious that no one's going to want to run a test just because you want them to. Um, so this is where I say that um, a lot of growth people fail because they fail to explain why it's important to run that test. And this is where the hypothesis document comes into play. If you write this document and it's not clear to you why it's important, you shouldn't run it. If you run that, if you write that hypothesis document and it's extremely clear and you know why it's important and you know how it impacts, be it your North Star metric, be it your major company's KPI, be it your, your, be it your um, I don't know, quarterly KPI goal, whatever it may be, how it impacts that number then people will understand and it becomes more critical. Um, you're always going to, like, different companies will use different methodologies to be able to prioritize testing, right? Some are going to use, like, the rice and then measure, like, the impact and the how feasible is it and blah, blah, blah. Some are going to be a little bit more, like, I don't know, crazy horse and just, like, let it run, <laughs> just run everything, do whatever test that people want them to run. And some are going to be very, very, very strict about testing, because they value, like, it depends on, on what the mindset is within your company. And I always say, if you don't have a growth mindset across all departments, you, you, you shouldn't even have a growth department. Like, it, it should be that ubiquitous. Everyone in the company, every department should have a growth mindset. If they don't, it's your job as a head of growth, chief growth officer, head of marketing, whatever it may be, your title may be, to instill that in the other teams. So I think that a lot of the time, the, the chief growth officer's job is to make sure people understand why it's important to uh, um, seek growth in alternate routes through testing, through data, being data informed, things like that. And then you mentioned, um, oh, but if you're, a data, if you're not a really a data-driven company, how can you expect people to take you at face value when you say like, this test should be run? Like I said, you have to be able to have the ability to influence people and you only do that through numbers or experience. There's no other way. So do you have an example of it? Let's say, you know, you passed the hypothesis document, you got something really felt like a good test. How to, you know, take us, take us through the real life process of how that looks. All right. So I remember it specifically, there's, uh, without naming companies, um, I, I remember specifically one company that I was at, um, we had just launched uh, a new version of the product. Um, it had a lot of new features, a lot of like really cool things, things that weren't in the product before. The product never had a sign-up flow. It didn't require users to sign up to use it. So you could just download the app and just begin using it. Um, and it saved all of this information in, on your device. Um, and then I came in, I was like, this, this isn't what I like. Like, this doesn't work for me. Um, why is this, does this not work for me? Because it seems to me that we're never going to be able to retarget these users and upsell them anything or get them to convert to a paying subscription. Like, we just don't have the ability to talk to them. And I said, like, so we do offer the ability to sign up, but they're not required to do so. So what's our sign-up rate? And our sign-up rate was like 35%. So out of all the users that we had, only 35% actually signed up. And then I remember I said, like, look, I want to test putting the sign-up flow as the first thing. Like, it seems obvious, but not to everyone. And then I said, like, I just want, as soon as they land in the app, they download the app, they see a splash screen, and the first thing we do is ask for their email and password. That's it. And then 
the product team was very reluctant. They're like, we built this product that's super machine learning uh, driven and it'll tailor the person based on their device and their experience. Like, we don't need their email. We don't need them to sign up. I'm like, great. So then I just brought like one piece of information. It's like, hey, in the country where we're most relevant in, um, the average life cycle of a cell phone, of a mobile phone, mobile device is, is roughly a year and a half. So we're looking at 18 months churn maximum. Like that's the maximum we'll be able to retain our users. Um, because once they change their phones, it's very unlikely that they're going to re- their history is saved there. It's not saved in, in uh, anywhere else. Uh, so it's not based on an account. And they're like, okay, but still, we can tailor this to the app, the account, once they download their like iOS uh, and just, I don't know, just get their apps back. Like we can still do it. I'm like, okay, great. But how do you retarget these users? How do you get them to subscribe and pay to the subscription we want? So what are we supposed to do? We have these users using the product. We should be able to hit them with emails and push notifications. Instead, you're suggesting I take these devices, create Facebook audiences with them and spend more money to reacquire them again. Um, Like that doesn't make sense. And it, it was met with a lot of resistance. So then what I did was, okay, great, let's do this. We're going to run this test. 50% of the audience is going to come in the regular way. 50% of the audience is going to come in and we're going to request that they sign up immediately. We're going to look at the sign-up rate at the end of both of these funnels. Um, uh, and what's going to determine success is if the sign-up rate does not drop um, to, or sorry, if the sign-up rate does not, or the conversion rate post sign-up uh, increases. So I think that was it. Yeah, post conversion rate, post sign up. So in theory, we had 35% sign up rate if we didn't put it like as the first step. Once we put it in the first step, this jumped to 85%. So we only lost 15% users technically. And then the guys were like, no, but we're losing 15% of our users. It's terrible. Like we're down, they're downloading the app and they're not using it. I said, well, these 15% is probably the most likely the ones who downloaded the app and deleted it almost immediately. So then we looked at our post-install uh, deletion. We started seeing how many people were deleting the app after the install, and it lowered. So there was less people deleting the app afterwards because the people who did sign up were more engaged to test the product, found more value. So we started bringing the value up front as much as we could. Um, once we launched our subscription, so this became our de facto like journey from now on. Once we launched our subscription, the same battle kind of happened where it was, Let's just let users come in, test the product, use it for free, and then we'll try to get them to pay. Or we're going to put a hard paywall with a free trial and see what happens. Um, And again, common sense was let people use the product. This should have had a higher conversion rate, right? They use the product, they tested it, they like it, they pay. Um, Putting a paywall directly up front without ever using the product or at least starting a free trial without ever using the product. Seems like it wouldn't make as much sense. Um, so I had to drop this document, I had to drop this hypothesis, explain why I thought this was going to increase our average revenue per user. Um, and then I put all my metrics down, put my KPIs, put my targets and goals, convinced the team that this was going to make us more revenue. We launched it. It turns out that our subscription rate, so actually becoming a paying customer, almost tripled. It doubled, like it was 2.5x. And then then it was very clear, like this is a de facto 
journey. We can test against this, but the test was very, very adamant about the results. So wow, it's a, it's a pretty, pretty. I mean, insane difference. I guess. How do you explain it? Is it that you're, you know, you're kind of making sure that you're either filtering for serious users early on, or you're kind of forcing them to make that commitment to actually try it out by putting them in that place? It's a little, I think, yes, it's more of the latter. I I think that you're forcing the user to make a commitment to actually use the product and engage with it because they've made a decision to start a free trial. Again, it's a free trial. They can always cancel, but everyone knows the the hassle of canceling pre iOS 13, at least, Um, or iOS 12 was, I don't know. I don't remember anymore, but like, pre uh, the delete cancellation flow that Apple launched. Um, But previous to this, everyone knew like the hassle of it. So it was kind of like, uh, if I decide to start a free trial, I'm actually going to engage with the product and try to test it and try to use it. Um, Another thing is, I believe, uh, so I don't know, a lot of people, I think it's Andrew Chen. Let me actually just double check just so I don't quote anyone wrong. But... um, yeah, it's Andrew Chen. So the psych points from Andrew Chen. Um, I like. I really like the idea of um, this methodology. And I remember, I, I had the psych framework. This is kind of old by like growth standards now, but I still believe it to be true. I still love it. I think it's one of my favorite frameworks, where it's you attribute psych points, positive and negative, to different steps in the journey, right? If you have a product that is just so inherently amazing that like everyone is going to touch it and fall in love with it and want to pay more and more and more and more money for it, by all means, simplify it the most. Make it the, like one good example, Tinder. Tinder is a great example. You get value immediately. You don't need to pay for it before you start. You get value immediately. It's amazing. It's great. Like you get what you want as soon as like the first screen shows up, right? Um, take a product like like Blinkist, like Audible, like Books, like Netflix. The value isn't always there. If you were allowed to browse Netflix's catalog before paying, you might not want to pay. You might be that person who's like, you know what? Uh, I didn't find anything I liked. But once you pay, start a free trial, you're automatically thinking like, okay, I need to at least find something I'll enjoy. Because you're in that trial mode, right? But if you're if you just look over the screen once and you're like, eh, nothing suits me, buy. You don't even you don't even give yourself the chance to like the product, right? So, I truly believe that having paywalls, having hard paywalls as early on in the process is gonna you're gonna take advantage of the highest like site point possible before killing it with a paywall paywalls always kill your site points paywalls are always that moment where you're like well fuck this like i <laughs> well, sorry well it's like well it's I, okay I, it's okay we right. don't have children listeners you're you're safe <laughs> sounds good sounds good so it's like so they're like oh fuck this i don't like this um i don't like this product or i don't like this paywall i don't i don't like this. so it's always going to be the moment where you frustrate users the most right when you ask them to pay And then a lot of people are like, oh, the more committed you get them to be, the more likely they are to pay. And that's true if you've created a product that that commitment generates, that there's a reason for that commitment. But if you just make them go through a long-ass funnel to then at the end get to a paywall, they're just going to get frustrated and say no. 
Um, but if you put it really early on, people are still at that moment where they just clicked the ad, they just saw the reason, they just put it in their minds that they want to test this, right? So you take like fitness apps. If you didn't have paywalls coming up early on, no one's going to pay for it. If you let like, this is why free trials are short with most fitness apps um, because people will give up very early. Um, people blame the apps for their lack of commitment. And that's normal. Like the language apps, the fitness apps, all the apps that require heavy lifting from the user, they will blame the app for their lack of their discipline. So they will cancel, which is why you need to generate as much commitment as possible. And nothing says commitment, like putting your credit card information in um, and generate as much commitment as possible because they will uh, be less committed to using the product. They will disengage. And it's just normal. Um, obviously the products needs to work their ass off to make sure that you continue to get people engaged. You get like CRM looking at all the engagement funnels and things like that. But at the end of the day, the reason why I always believe that putting the paywall early on worked is because you're then at that moment where it's a impulsive purchase, right? So if you think about psychology you think about why people buy what they buy and things like that, why are all the really easy to carry, really easy to buy items always at the counter? Because it's impulsive, right? You make the decision at that moment. It's the same thing with subscription apps. If you let the users browse their ass off and just try everything, they're going to realize that, hey, maybe this isn't for me. But if they make that impulsive purchase, they are then committed to making that work because they already paid for it, right? Or at least they think they paid for it. So... That's kind of the thing. Like, it really depends on your app. There's some apps that I love so much that I've been a paying user for such a long time that I'd be like, I don't care where the paywall is. It's like, I don't care what funnel they make me, what hoop they make me go through to pay for it. I'll just do it. Like, Spotify is one example for me. I was about to say, I think uh, music apps can get away with that a lot of the time because you build so much. Also, you you invest in that whole listening. So like, that's the thing. And this is why you create retention. Like, why does no one leave Deezer for Spotify, Spotify for Deezer, Deezer for YouTube music and so on? Like, you don't really leave one app from the other. You might actually get both. Um, and you might actually like use multiple because maybe one specific artist is only on one platform or whatever it may be. But like, why is, why are, if you're a heavy user, like I'm a heavy, I'm a heavy Spotify user. There is absolutely nothing YouTube music and Deezer can throw at me to make me leave with maybe the exception of recreating all my playlists, importing all my data and making me not pay for it. Like, but then I'm a very low value user. <laughs> so it's like, there's nothing they can do. So like every single time I see YouTube, like, oh, I've gotten so many different coupons and discounts to try YouTube music. And I think their app is actually better. They have better UI. I love the, the experience when you like start the product. Um, their recommendation experience is amazing. Deezer's recommendation al algorithm is much better than Spotify's in my opinion. Doesn't matter. My lists are there. I have like 40 different playlists that I've made. I have my wedding playlist that I made that I love to like go back to and listen to that I spent three weeks building. Like, unless you're gonna, this is why 
there is no way to export a playlist through Spotify's API because this would be the only way for you to actually get users, like rob users. But yeah. I think it's I hard. I think uh, <laughs> that I'm with you. I mean, I think part of the challenge is that so many, uh, you know, you're releasing a new product and when you're so involved in it, for you, it is viral, you know, for you, it is, it does have that stickiness. You know, I think about, I think the example you brought up is really good, which is Netflix. You think of Netflix as this incredibly powerful, sticky product. And of course it is, but not because you have, you know, if, if I, I've had Netflix, I've had Netflix since it was DVDs in the mail. So I don't even, I can't pretend to enter that mindset. But when I look at other, you know, other streaming platforms, and when you think about making that commitment, Anytime you're browsing to that extent, you can usually browse yourself out of actually making a decision. It's the, you know, what are the, but something paralysis. There's a word for this of the. Decision paralysis. It's decision yeah, paralysis. Exactly. So, like, so. I signed up to Disney Plus without looking at the catalog. Just because I knew all the Marvel movies were going to move there. Um, I have uh, a, a. At the moment I signed up, I had a baby on the way. Now I have a baby girl who's recently arrived that I know she's going to want to watch Disney movies. Like, thank you. I know she's going to want to watch Disney movies and I'm going to want to watch them with her. So I want to review and rewatch a lot of the movies that um, I haven't seen in many, many years. So it's like Disney for me was like, I don't care if their catalog is exactly what it is right there. Because all of the movies that they have are movies that I'm going to continue to rewatch. I don't require it to like uh, recently. So like I said, like my, my baby girl is a newborn. She's very recent. She's 22 days old at time of recording. Um, <laughs> so I spend most of my uh, um, like midnight to 5 a.m. awake trying to get her to go to sleep or just holding her in my, and, and, like just holding her in my arms and like shushing her, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And what I do like what I watch uh, while I have her in my arms is I binge watch something that I've already seen because I know that I can just simply turn, look away, deal with her, and it doesn't matter what I miss. So I've recently just rewatched the entire Marvel catalog in the last <laughs> 10 days. Um, I have to tell you, I did uh, when my daughter, my, uh, my oldest was born, she's seen all of the Sopranos since she was like uh, maybe the tiniest girl, but it's so true. It's uh, It doesn't yeah. matter if it's riveting. You need it there. It's that exactly. uh, the background. <laughs> it's like if, if you've ever tried to burp a baby without something to watch, without like, it's just like time just does not move. So if you're just like, you're holding a baby with nothing to watch, two minutes feels like 30 minutes and your arms are just like jello. But if you're watching something, you can get by it quite easily. So it's, uh, this is, this is my hack. So this is my, my growth <laughs> hack, my parenting hack. But like, um, this is the thing that most people don't realize is that depending on the product that you have, your catalog does not have to be overly invested in. Um, this is the, the, the case for Disney+. Plus. For Netflix, it's not the case because Netflix does not have that library of originals that people just want to rewatch over and over and over again. Um, most of their movies suck. Most of their uh, series are great, but they have to continue. Like, no one's going to, I don't know if there's any series that on Netflix that are just super rewatchable because they're not that long anyway. 
they had the office, but uh, not anymore. It's not theirs. It's not theirs. And that's exactly, like yeah. they had friends, they had the office, et cetera. So the problem is that uh, when Disney launches their own, when HBO launched their own, when like all these different players are launching their own and taking that catalog, you have two types of catalog. And this is why you see Netflix investing so much in stand-up comedy, in um, reality shows, in low-budget productions with high entertainment value over repetition. I am certain, like, I don't know this for a fact, so I'm not a Netflix employee, never have been, don't know anyone there. But I am certain that they have a metric of uh, some kind of, like, uh, show lifetime value over repetition. I'm certain they have something like this. Because, like, at High Books, we used to have cost per listened hour. Um, and this cost per listen hour is the most important metric for us and any audiobook company. Um, so you, you want to look at this metric where it's like, hey, well, how much did we invest to make this show or this whatever it may be? And it doesn't matter if it's one person watching it a billion times or a billion people watching it once. It doesn't matter. Um, well, I, I mean, in this case, it does matter because it's Netflix, but like, because you have <laughs> subscriptions. But like, the thing is, you want to look at what's the lifetime value of that product over time. If it if it's a retention uh, play or if it's a growth play. So like when you launch uh, Casa de Papel series four, seasons four, that's a growth play. You're trying to tap into new markets or when they launch season two and three and then now four. That's a growth play because you're trying to tap into new markets, into Latin American markets with different types of shows, lower budgets because they're not American Hollywood uh, made uh, budgets, but still great quality, amazing quality. Whereas um, if you acquire Friends, that's a retention play. Friends is not a growth play, it's a retention play. Um, so I'm certain that they look at their catalog that way, just like people should look at their apps, their products in this feature. Is this feature a growth feature or is this feature a retention feature? Or better yet, an acquisition feature or a retention feature? Because they're both going to be growth. You cannot grow with a leaky bucket. That's like the most traditional sentence growth people use. Um, but it's so true. If you don't think about features that are retention-driven and then features that are acquisition-driven. So if you look at a company like uh, like AidFit, where I was at, there are certain things that are 100% retention focused, right? So like the recipes, um, some of the recipes, et cetera, they're, like, they're very retention focused. So once the more you use the app, the better it is and things like that. But most people don't sign up to 8Fit for the recipes. Most people sign up to 8Fit because they want a fitness app. They want a quick workout. They want to lose their gut. They want a seven-minute workout, whatever it may be. Um, and these, these ads suck because you acquire people they come in, they fail because the value proposition of losing X in 30 days, losing Y in seven minutes a day is just not true. So the value proposition is not met and people will leave. So then you need the other features that are the retention features to add value as you go along. You brought it full circle very nicely on exactly. kind of the custom metrics going from, you know, like... Uh, what's relevant at high books could never have been relevant at your other, uh, you know, <laughs> your other ventures. Um, but I think, I think you're so right. And I think part of it also just takes that honesty, which comes into kind of really justifying the things you do. You've got to be honest with yourself and we'd all love to have the most viral product on the planet, 
but you have to actually make sure you can back it up. Okay, I'm going to finish you off with the quick fire round. You ready? Go for it. Okay, first of all, if you could give just one tip to somebody who's just entering into the world of growth, what would it be? Learn to ask questions. Favorite mobile growth resource? Favorite mobile growth resource? I'm not sure if this is... I'll make it growth. I'll go overall. You can take mobile out of it. Just growth. I'm not sure this is fair, but like Reforge is by far like my favorite, but I know it's expensive and not really uh, accessible for most people. Um, So usually you have to your company pay for it. So I'm going to go with something that's free. I absolutely love um, Reid Hoffman's podcast, uh, Masters of Scale. Amazing. Let's say uh, COVID ends and you get to see people again and and that all is uh, normal. Who's the person in the growth industry that you'd most want to take for lunch and why? Hmm. Person in the growth industry I most want to take for lunch and why? At this moment, probably Karen Flanagan from HubSpot, just because I'm diving into B2B for the first time in the last, uh, I don't know, 12 months. And I don't think there's anyone better. Okay. Most important question. What is your favorite type of pancake? My favorite type of pancake, blueberry. Nice. Classic. That was quick. Most people take a minute, but I'm, uh, I'm impressed. Okay. So this was amazing. Where can people find you if they want to learn more, see what you're up to? So uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. Um, it's linkedin.com dash in dash Salo Marty. Very easy. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Salo underscore Marty. And I think that's it. I'm not a huge social media person, which that's is ironic. That's you need. <laughs> You're affecting other people's ability to, to growth. But uh, I'm with you. you. I also, I don't, uh, I'm not good at it. Thank you so, so much for taking the time. This was awesome. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And that was Mobile Growth and Pancakes. To find out more about StoreMaven and how we can improve App Store performance, visit StoreMaven.com. And then make sure to search for Mobile Growth and Pancakes and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at StoreMaven, thanks for listening.